Welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into the exceptional leaders at Bain and spotlights the incredible work they're doing. You can look at their bios online, but that only scratches the surface of who they are. We share the stories that show why our leaders are truly extraordinary. Today's episode of the podcast is going to be a little different than usual. Instead of hearing from a new leader, we'll be discussing highlights from a few episodes we really enjoyed releasing in the past season and share a look ahead of what you can expect from Beyond the Bio. Joining me today is Daniel Yellen, a second-year consultant based in Atlanta and one of our show's producers. Daniel put his hand up and volunteered to participate in the podcast, and we were thrilled to have him join the team. He's flipping the script and interviewing me in this conversation so I can share my thoughts on the conversations we've had and throw a little bit of perspective looking backwards throughout the year at some of the highlights of the podcast. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Keith. I'm really excited to be here. I'm psyched to have this opportunity to talk with you and have the listeners be able to listen to a little bit more of what you have to say about Bain and the conversations we've had throughout this past year. Now, Daniel, I, I can't completely abandon my host responsibilities. Can you just share a little bit about why in the world you put your hand up to volunteer on this in addition to your client work? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I volunteered to be a producer on Beyond the Bio as part of my extra 10, an opportunity to do something extracurricular within my time at Bain. And what attracted me to this is this is not my first rodeo. When it comes to podcasts, I got my MBA at NYU Stern. And while there, I ran the student-led podcast there in my second year as an MBA too, which happened during COVID. So it was my way to connect with my classmates and my professors and the alumni of the university. And it was called Stern Chats. And it was a wonderful time and was happy to get back on the horse here. Well, it was awesome for us to add a seasoned veteran because Rachel, me and the team have been sort of making this up as we go along and your expertise and your energy really helped, which is part of the reason we ended up doing this episode today. So do you want to share with people what, what to expect right now? Yeah, sure. So believe it or not, this is the 50th episode of Beyond the Bio and is also coinciding with the third year of the show, the three-year anniversary. This show came out when I was in the middle of recruiting for my summer associate position, and it was an important part of my decision to join Bain. And so we're hoping that this will be an opportunity to reflect back on some of the conversations that we've had this year. And I should say that we've loved all of the conversations that we've had on the show in this past year but just feel like these clips highlight some of the range that we've covered on the show. And as people are listening to this and reflecting back, I would be remiss if I didn't plug our listener survey and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you want to hear. Uh, let us know what you don't want to hear and let us know how we can make a better podcast for all the listeners that are out there. So shall we get started? Let's do it. So what we're going to do throughout this episode is we're going to listen to some clips from different episodes that we released throughout this year. And so our first clip is from when we had our chief diversity officer, Julie Kaufman, on the show to share how we think about DE&I. Diversity, equity, inclusion is very important to us and is something we passionately focus on here at Bain, both internally and in our work with clients. And in this clip, just to set it up, Julie is talking about Bain's external DE&I efforts particularly our work with an organization called 110. One of the things that we learned early on was that our clients were really looking for thought partners and an opportunity to access ideas. And so there were a few things that were happening simultaneously. We were involved in standing up a coalition of Fortune 500 companies. It's now up to about 65 member companies that were pledging to hire a million Black Americans over the next 
10 years into family-sustaining wage jobs that do not require a four-year college degree, with a recognition that 80% plus of Black Americans don't have a four-year college degree. And we've been using that credential in in an unnecessary way for many, many jobs that are needed in the society. So by Bain being involved through our social impact work in standing that up, we also recognize from all of those corporations that they were looking for a way to think about what are the practices we need to do to make that happen, both in our talent acquisition and also in our talent retention. And we had an opportunity to think about our own learnings around recruitment that you've led over time, Keith, about stripping out unconscious biases and coming up with processes that were enabling and inviting to more populations. 110 is a great example, but from your perspective, what impact can a consulting firm like Bain have through its focus on DEI? You know, that's a, a great question, and that's one of the things that has always stood out to me about the origin and the work that 110 is doing. And in the grand scheme of things, 110 will have an impact, but I think the visible impact of the million jobs Julie is talking about is really just the tip of the iceberg. And as a consulting firm with the scale and scope of Bain & Company, we're in the room with the most senior leaders of some of the most reputable, largest, most impactful companies in the world, period. What we do when we have their ear and the impact that can have is exactly what Julie is talking about. And what we found is that because of 110 and because of the rooms that we're in, we can start the right dialogues with our clients. You know, 110 is something that has some very explicit, discrete goals. But the truth is that in reaching those goals, you have conversations with clients and they're having conversations with their leadership teams they'd never have. And I say that as someone who got a call from Bain's 110 representative. In addition to supporting and helping drive the effort, we're also a member organization. And Bain's 110 rep called me one day and said, hey, I have a question about the job specs that you're posting for the recruiting roles on your team. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, does this one really require a college degree? And I kind of thought about it and the answer was no. And there's a little bit of this realization of like, wow, this is really hard. You know, nobody at Bain has been more involved in our DEI efforts and our diversity efforts, arguably in our recruiting efforts than me. And I had a blind spot on the job specs my own organization was posting. And that's the part of it where you go, 110 is going to do what it says it's going to do, but it's going to spark all these other conversations and light bulb moments in organizations around the world and definitely in the country and in the member organizations. And you go, that's where the real impact is going to come. When someone like me, who's arguably an expert with decades of experience in this goes, crap, I don't know it all. And I sure as hell aren't doing everything the way I should be. Yeah. From your perspective as the global head of consultant recruiting, what does it mean for Bain to be inclusive in its own recruiting practices? What does that look like? There's a bunch of things that we're working on. And you know what it means for us is that we understand that people are coming from different backgrounds and different spots. And I think once upon a time, we had a very clear prototype of the type of individual that we were looking at. And once you've been around for a little while, you realize that our leadership team at Bain is ridiculously diverse in terms of their backgrounds, in terms of the path they took, in terms of what they've trained, in terms of how they grew up, in terms of their socioeconomic status. And you go, wow, all of these people can succeed here. But the truth is that if a lot of them were coming through the process the way it's evolved over the last you know, several decades, they may not get through the process. And you go, well, wait a minute, maybe that's a problem. And we need to be thinking less about, you know, how did you do on this particular screen that we put forward and more about how are we measuring people's actual potential? 
And how are we trying to develop a screening process and an interview process that meets people where they're at and says, you know what, if, if this person had the case prep resources that this other university had because of the ecosystem of alumni and recruiting that happens there, they'd probably do just as well in the case interview. But they don't have that. So how am I checking their potential? If somebody's never played American football before and they're trying out for the team, they may not know how to run the routes and the plays that you're calling in the huddle. But when you look, they're like, man, they're really fast. Wow, they're really coordinated. Their hand-eye coordination is amazing. They could probably learn the sport if you took a minute because they're a really good athlete. And a little bit of what we need to be doing as a company and what I hope other companies are taking away from Julie's conversation is we need to be looking for good athletes because they can learn the sport if they're given an opportunity. And that, to me, is one of the biggest sort of changes that I'm hoping corporate America makes based on some of the work that we're doing with 110 and other efforts that we have going. That makes a lot of sense. And as I think about what it takes also to get into this industry, a lot of it has to do with having people in your corner and it has to do with mentorship and it has to do with leadership, taking an interest in that talent pipeline. And so before we move on from this conversation, I want to play a couple of clips. One is from Julie, who will listen and hear that you've had a longstanding relationship within Bain. And then another is from someone who you had an opportunity to mentor, Brittany Matthews. And so I'll play these clips and then would love your reaction to them. I take full credit for Keith Bevins. So all you longtime listeners that really enjoy Keith, uh, I was involved in recruiting Keith, hiring Keith. And I think if the story's right, Keith, I was one of your first managers, right? For your first case. Yeah. So I wasn't quite sure Bain was for me on day one, but I was doing internal work. You were my first client case about a month, a month and a half into Bain. And as I, as I tell people, wrote all of my performance reviews, good, bad, and ugly until I got promoted to partner. So thanks for that. Seems to have worked out, Julie. We're doing okay. It seems to have worked out for all of us quite, quite well. All the other conversations I had with other people, I would say were very encouraging. Oh, keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track, all of those sorts of things. When I had my chat with you, Keith, it was very much like, hey, Brittany, if you want to be successful in consulting, here's what I have to tell you. And here's what you need to do. And here's what your game plan should be. And that level of focus and feeling like I was getting sponsorship before I had even started at the firm, that carried through to all of the conversations I had with other people at Bain as well. And so pretty quickly and pretty early on, not only did I find that I was interested in consulting, but but Bain felt like the right place for me. Wow. Yeah, right? (laughs) You know, those two clips that you just played, Daniel, show basically three generations of leaders at Bain. You know, Julie, as I said, was my first manager 27 years ago. And out of that, maybe because we just had a small office and I didn't have that many options, but she was my performance reviewer, my PD advisor, if you will. Um, She wrote all of my reviews, as I mentioned in the clip. But our friendship has become a lot deeper than that. I mean, we've had a chance to work together on multiple clients. Our families are friends with each other. We've gone out socially. And being able to have someone who you completely trust has been a huge part of why I'm still at Bain. What's interesting is that second clip that you played, Brittany, uh, as we mentioned in that episode, I think she reached out to me when she was a freshman in college with one of those sort of emails that we all get at one point or we've all written, it seems like at one point or another. And thinking about my relationship with Julie and some of the other mentor relationships that I've had, you know, I've been the beneficiary of a lot of people who emailed me back when they had no reason to, none at all. And so I take it really seriously when people sincerely reach out looking for help or advice, because I know that I might not be here if I didn't have the the benefit of people taking that risk and investing that time in me. I don't think I'm unique at pain in that sense. I think I might do it a little bit more than most people, 
But everybody at Bain wants to see people succeed. They want to be a part of a success story. And they take the time to invest in people in a way that's really, really cool. When you join a place like Bain and when you go anywhere, the relationships that you're building ultimately matter. And you might think about it as because you're trying to get promoted or because you're going to get the job. But you might mess around and realize that you've developed friendships and mentors for life. And that's been really important for me because I get asked a lot about why I've stayed at Bain as long as I have. And I generally think there's three questions that you ask yourself. I'm not sure I articulated it this way early in my career, but it's what do you get paid to do? Who do you get paid to do it with? And how much do you get paid to do it? And at different points in your career, different questions are more important than others. And at this stage of my career and for the last several years, it's been about who I get paid to do it with. And the people that I work with, people like Julie, people like Brittany, people like you who just show up and say, hey, how can I be on the team? That's what's really cool about this place. And that's one of the most exciting parts of being here and coming to work every day. So this season, we also focused on worker well-being and mental health and featured Andy Dunn, a Bain alum, who went on to found and lead the clothing brand Bonobos. Andy went on to sell Bonobos to Walmart and is also the author of the new book, Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. I thought it would be worthwhile, Keith, for us to revisit this conversation because Andy has been transparent about his mental health journey and advocates for more openness about mental health in the workplace. Have a listen. My goal in writing this book is is pretty singular, which is to normalize disclosure of mental illness and mental health challenges in the workplace. And I believe that that normalization, as with anything in life, begins with leaders. Now, a leader can be someone on the team, anyone really, that steps forward and takes opportunities to disclose. And also, leaders are the people that lead organizations. And so my message to Anyone hearing this who is a leader of what they do, who has got a secret or some version of a secret, is to bring it at some point to work. And that might start by just telling one person at work that doesn't know. You know, it doesn't have to start at a town hall. It doesn't have to start on a Zoom in front of 500 people. In fact, it never starts that way. But just start by telling one person. So I found this conversation really interesting and important because what it's saying is that we need to expect more of our leaders to have these difficult conversations, which hopefully won't feel as difficult if more people have them. What do you think the impact of business leaders like Andy openly discussing their mental health challenges will be in the long run? Well, first, it was great to talk with Andy and to have my first co-host, Mackenzie, on that episode. We were all long overdue to talk. What Andy's conversation reminded me of is that it's really scary for new people on a team or junior people on a team to be vulnerable in the types of ways that he's talking about. It's one thing to say you're not familiar with Alteryx or you've never used Tableau before or Excel is not as familiar as it is to a classmate who was an engineer or has a business background. It's an entirely other thing to be vulnerable at work about mental health or about some family issues that you might be having. What Andy is encouraging leaders to do is say, you want to create that environment, and we all say the right things. Nobody's going to say, you know, I don't want people to bring their whole self to work, and I don't want people to be open and honest and vulnerable at work. I want them to just put their head down and do that. Nobody says that. But the reality is that it's very difficult for new people or junior people to go first. 
And Andy's telling leaders, if you want to create that space and prove to people that it's safe, in some ways, you have to go first. You have to tell people that maybe you visit a therapist or maybe your kids are going through something or maybe you've had some health issues. And that shows people that it is a safe place because they know that if they open up, they're not putting themselves out there in a place where people don't. They just saw you do it. And that is very eye-opening because I don't think a lot of leaders realize how big a risk that feels like to somebody joining an organization for the first time. And Daniel, as somebody who's been here a long time, I have a track record. I have a reputation. I have relationships. I have friends. Like I have cases that I can point to. So if I open up, it's way different at this stage of my career than somebody who's been here a year or two years. And I don't think we always think about that. And from my perspective as a more junior member of the Bain family, <laughs> it's an opportunity for a leader to stand out. If somebody is willing to, in this case, bring their whole self to work and discuss something that might be difficult for them, but shows who they like truly are and like shows more full view of themselves to their team. Ultimately, I think the team will respect them. I think that the team will be supportive. The nice thing about being in the in the younger generation of Bainies is these are conversations that we are more comfortable having coming from a different cultural perspective. And so I think that conversation is really an invitation for folks at Bain and elsewhere to share their stories because ultimately I think it brings us together and it makes the teams better. One of the things he was talking about in that episode was the person who sort of opened up to him first. And he was like, wow, you, you feel insecure? My goodness, you're like this godlike figure in the office. And, and I've worked with the, the gentleman that he was referring to. And at that time, and he's gone on to do great things since leaving Bain, he was like one of the most well-respected, strongest performers in the office. And knowing that he was vulnerable enough to open up to Andy, that made Andy more comfortable. Like, I think that's a, there's an example in there that a lot of us can learn from and, and implement in our day-to-day. -day. For sure. So I thought this conversation might actually be, good, be a good opportunity for us to lead by example. I was wondering if you had anything that you feel would be like important to share that might make people understand who Keith Bevins is a little bit more. There's so many, we could probably do a whole season on that if we wanted to. In terms of mental health and some of the challenges there, in the 2008 election cycle, I think those of you who have actually gone to my bio on LinkedIn see that I'm on the, I was on the board of directors at Trinity United Church of Christ here in Chicago. And one of our members happened to be running for president. And our outgoing pastor, now Pastor Emeritus, and incoming pastor were sort of front and center for some of the things that we had covered in the church. And as a board member, dealing with bomb threats, dealing with frivolous threats of lawsuits from the IRS and, and other activists and showing up for church and trying to get plucked off by news media on the way in on Sunday morning to give you some inflammatory quote to end up on the news, that was really hard. And we were meeting almost weekly because people's lives were at risk. And we were literally getting threats called in all the time. And I had to go to my office head and say, Michael, uh, Michael Collins, who's now our COO at the firm, and say, my head's not in the game right now. I'm having trouble focusing on work because there's just a lot of things going on outside of work that this is not just a pastor and a member on the evening news. This is like family to me. And I'm really struggling to sort of put that aside and focus on, you know, this spreadsheet or this analysis. And he said, take the time you need. We can dial it back. We can get you the support you need. And ultimately it worked out fine, but we had created that environment in the office where at the time as a 
relatively new partner, this was my first year as a partner, to go to my office and say, hey, thanks for helping me clear the bar. You know, I'm glad to be a partner, but I'm going to need a minute was hugely valuable. And it was just a good example, I think, of Bain stepping into support when needed. And I'm hugely grateful to Michael that his response was the way it was because he gave me the space I needed to deal with things on the home front. I want to focus now on ESG. We had Sasha Duchnowski join the show to talk about the work he led which is still ongoing in the Marshall Islands. And in this clip, Sasha outlines the goals of the initiative, which was a joint venture between the Nature Conservancy and the government. Have a listen. The starting point that we had was, how do we change, how do we change a transaction mechanism? So rather than telling you what price we'll pay for fish after you've caught them, we'll tell you before. And by the way, we'll only buy them if your monitoring equipment is on all the time. And by the way, you have to bring them back to a dock so that your workers can leave if they want to while you're docked unloading the fish. By the way, those fish unloaded at port in Majuro are going to be processed initially by facilities that were built at the port. So it creates jobs. It creates jobs there. By the way, we take all of your video. And so if a customer downstream wants to know where was this fish caught, we can show them that fish being caught. And so that just that one transaction was the first dot that one transaction mechanism was the first domino to fall and a number of things that we could change. So then this this entity, which is a JV between the Nature Conservancy and the Republic of the Marshall Islands, which in and of itself is a novel construct, that can now go and just offer a fundamentally different value proposition to anybody who's buying tuna to put it in the can. So before I hear your reaction, I just want to say, I don't want to pick favorites, but this was maybe my favorite clip from this season, just because of how unfathomably complex of a challenge this was. And then we kind of like breezed by the fact that this ended up moving the GDP of a country. So I would just love to hear your reaction to this clip. Right. And what stood out to me, and I had heard about the work before I talked with Sasha, which is one of the reasons I wanted him on the show, but the casual manner in which he just rattled off eight or nine things. And in that episode, there's probably two dozen things, but he just casually rattled off a bunch of things where any one of them would have been a reason to say, you know what, too complicated, forget it. And as I think about it, though, it was a really good example of the types of work that we do at Bain. It's really neat for me to say, why not? And they give an answer. And then Sasha said, well, why not? And then they gave another answer. And Sasha said, well, why not? And, you know, you do this about 20 times and you go, hey, maybe this will work. And that's how we approach the client work, right? There's, to me, and I've seen this a bunch over my career, Daniel, where there's an acceptable, mediocre answer that shows just enough progress to say you moved, but doesn't really address the problem. And a lot of companies, and unfortunately, a lot of firms want to do just enough to declare victory. And they don't really want to do the hard work to make it a lasting, permanent change that transforms an industry or transforms a company. And what Sasha is talking about here, there are a bunch of ways he could have done something incremental. You know, he could have said, we're going to hire a monitor and put them on every boat and they will certify it and God bless them and hope they don't get corrupted sometime down the line. Instead, what he says, no, let's go end to end and change every step of this so that when we go, there's absolutely no going back. And that was just the coolest thing to hear for me. And I really enjoyed that, that whole conversation with him. What this showed me is it's this idea of active inertia, where the easiest thing to do 
is to do more of what has worked for you in the past. If someone doesn't hear you, you talk louder, right? But this shows that the right path oftentimes is a U-turn or is a hard left turn, right? It's, it's going to be something totally different than how you've thought about solving a problem today. And I'm still in my first couple of years in the job here, but like, that's the most fun thing about this job, in my opinion, is getting to think, okay, we know what they've done. It's yeah, sure. It's been successful. What can we do? That's totally different. That could take it to the next level. That's so true. And the, and the act of inertia is a great way to describe it. You know, and the, it's a little bit like when you speak with somebody, like when you're traveling abroad and you speak with somebody where English isn't their native language and you say something and they kind of don't understand. So you just say it louder and slower. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's not helping. They actually don't speak the same language. You need to do something different. And what Sasha was basically saying is we need to do something different, not just do what we're doing harder, do it slower, do it more methodically. We need a completely different approach. And the fact that they took that on and said, we can do this. Fun fact, Sasha has gotten inquiries from other clients and other sectors who want to use that same approach and said, you know what, we've been trying this for forever and we want to do something different. Sasha, can you come in and talk with us? Yeah. And it's an incredible story to be able to tell and have that conversation as a jumping off point with clients, because this should help us have a model that we can replicate and create a similar sort of impact with other clients or other countries or other industries. What I would say, Daniel, is is earlier in this episode, we heard from Julie and we talked about the impact that Bain can have on DEI with 110 as one platform for that. This is the same underlying DNA, which is we will look at a really complex problem and say, why not? Why can't that be different? And if you don't have enough imagination to picture a world where something is radically different, you can't even begin to work towards it. We have a bunch of people with great imagination here, but they're crazy enough to actually try. So another thing I want to talk about is that Bain has made some recent acquisitions to add to the toolkit of what we can offer clients. And one recent conversation that I love this year was with Neil Shaw, who is our executive VP of mergers and acquisitions, who discusses how Bain thinks about M&A. And I think this clip really tees up nicely, generally, how we're approaching the topic of mergers and acquisitions here within Bain. Last year, we completed a minority investment alongside a partnership in Persephone, which is a leading SaaS platform that helps investors calculate, analyze, manage, and report on their carbon footprints. And so the idea is to pair their tool with Bain's expertise in carbon transitions and our understanding of private equity firm priorities to develop a solution that's going to help them on their own net zero journeys with the goal of being able to manage your carbon inventory with the same level of rigor and transparency that you put on your core financial metrics. So how does Bain generally think about M&A? That is a huge question, which we do unpack in the episode with Neil, but the simplest way to describe it is the state of the art in a lot of the areas that we're working in will just accelerate faster and innovate faster than any one company, even with the resources of Bain, can stay on top of when you think about all the different industries, all the different types of work, and all the different subsectors and all of those things. And so the way we're thinking about M&A at the highest level is 
let's focus on the things where we can truly be world-class, where we can be the Messi uh, World Cup finals coming up, so dating this episode, or we can be the Michael Jordan, being that I'm here in Chicago, or the LeBron James. Pick your favorite superstar. What are the areas where you can be that? And then how do you build that dream team around you to change the world? And we're recognizing that there's some areas, like Neil talks about in that clip, where we are clearly world-class, best-in-class at, at one thing. Why don't we find partners who are best-in-class at what they do and see if we can create something different that nobody would have imagined before? And nobody can touch what the two can do together. It's a little bit of the, the cliche, you know, one plus one equals three. And we're thinking, like, forget that. One plus one needs to equal seven. Because when you have that type of world-class organization A and world-class organization B come together, just something completely phenomenal comes from that. That's a little bit of the way I think we're thinking about M&A, which is it's not just about collecting capabilities or collecting organizations and companies and making investments all over the place. It's saying who should be part of the family and who should we be bringing into the family so that we can create something the world has never seen before. And that's what we're focused on. And in the spirit of talking about building a world-class workforce and building a world-class team here at Bain, it sounds a lot like how we're going to think about the types of people that Bain need to hire and need to be part of this team, whether we're bringing that in through acquisition or we're hiring them for more than just consulting roles through our Engine 2 efforts. Like, how are you thinking about creating the workforce at Bain that can create that world-class experience for clients and also for the folks who are here working every day? We're going to continue to expand the types of expertise that we're bringing into the firm. You know, center of plate, there'll always be general management consultant. But when you think about the expertise that it's going to take to succeed in the future, it's not just that world-class strategic thinking. We're going to need engineers. We're going to need data scientists. We're going to need user experience, user design experts, innovation experts, and all of those types of things. And what, what we're seeing today is that as we bring those people in and we bring those teams together, just things that weren't fathomable when I started my career are happening sort of on a daily basis, which is really awesome. And I think what we're seeing is that it starts becoming sort of self-perpetuating. You, you bring in great people and do great work. You talk about it, you share it, and that makes other great people want to be a part of it. And we're sort of the beneficiaries of this virtuous cycle that started several years ago and continues to roll on today. And I think we're, we're going to reflect this mindset in the folks who we talk to in the upcoming season of Beyond the Bio. Like we mentioned at the top, we also want to hear what the listeners think. And so this is my opportunity to make sure that I plug the listener survey. Uh, it's at bain.co slash BTB survey. And the link is also in the show notes below. Awesome. We do want to hear from everybody. Keith, I, I know the show means a lot to you. You've put a lot of effort and a lot of time into this, and I've been really fortunate to be a part of it for the last year. So in reflecting on the last three years, what's something you'd like to see happen with the podcast? So first of all, we never thought it would go this long. At least I didn't. Jackie, who's on the team, and now Rachel are awesome motivators, and they had a vision that I don't think anybody fully appreciated. I want to keep bringing on great guests. I'd like to hear from people in terms of what they want to hear us do more of and less of. 
And there's a couple of things that I know you and I and, and Rachel have been talking about doing a little bit differently, including Angela, which is maybe we'll do some short form things and bring on some more junior people, maybe do a couple of roundtable discussions. We think that could be interesting to just get a different flavor. We'll still stick to our you know meat and potatoes sort of current format, but we want to experiment with some different formats. The other thing that would be really interesting to me is if there was energy around it is, is creating a little bit more of a dialogue around the episodes. Those of you who've been listening for a long time know I'm, I'm active on some of the Reddit subs, and maybe there should be a Beyond the Bio podcast sub where we talk about the individual episodes, and maybe we have the guests come on and answer follow-up questions from people that are listening. And if somebody out there wants to start that up and, and get it going, I'd be happy to join and, and add that to my, to my milk run when I'm doing my social media scans every day. Well, we on the team are excited to take part in any future Reddit AMAs that you would want to host, Keith. Awesome. Well, I think that is a great place to end this year in review episode. Keith, thank you so much for having me on and I'll hand it over to you to, to take us out. Great. Well, thank you everybody for listening today. Please do take part in the listener survey and let us know what you think and look forward to talking with more of you in the months ahead. As we prepare for our next season of Beyond the Bio, we want to know what you, the listeners, think of the show. We want to make sure that we're making the content that you want to hear, and we're bringing on the guests you want to be introduced to. So on behalf of myself and everyone on the Beyond the Bio team, thank you so much in advance for your feedback. You can find our three-minute listener survey at atbain.co forward slash btb survey, all lowercase. That's atbain.co forward slash btb survey. You can also find a link in the show notes.